Dave Zirin is the sports editor for The Nation and has written many path-breaking books on the politics of sports and the legacy of radical, outspoken athletes who have used and risked their stature in order to resist racial oppression. Here, Zirin talks about how prominent athletes are breaking out from the corporate shackles to help mobilize for justice in the wake of the murders of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and Ahmed Arbery, among the many other victims of police brutality. He suggests that this is a pivotal moment of collective outrage and reinforces the need for vigilance and consistency in opposing oppressive forces for fear that we will see those in positions of power undertake a reactionary consolidation of that power. We also talk about the dangerous and disingenuous celebration of domination in Netflix and ESPN's documentary series The Last Dance and the urgent need for real diversity in both the coverage and performance of sports. My first question is about uh, your podcast, actually. Uh, You recently had Howard Bryant on your podcast to talk about his book, Full Dissidents, and you asked him about the books that inspired his method of of kind of analyzing sports and celebrity through a political lens. Bryant lists a few of his influences and actually goes into depth about them at the end of his terrific book. You, however, like in my reading, don't seem to talk as much about your own authorial influences. Uh, I wanted to ask, who are the writers, the athletes maybe, and the communicators in general that have most directly influenced your approach to talking about what you call the political soul of sports? Well, definitely, first and foremost, uh, Mike Marcusy, who's a, a late writer from the United States, but he wrote in Britain. Uh, He wrote a book called Redemption Song, Muhammad Ali in the Spirit of the 1960s that absolutely changed my life, came out in 1997, I believe. Um, And Marcus's ability to fuse politics and sports uh, blew my mind when I read it at that young age. And it it really shook me and it changed the way I saw sports could be communicated. And then I did a little bit bit of digging and found the columns of Robert Lipsight uh, with the New York Times. And that absolutely shook me as well, that he was doing this kind of work in the 60s and early 1970s in a way that was really impressive and, um, and changed me. Um, and then there are uh, some of the athletes as well. I mean, Jim Bouton's book, Ball Four, uh, the late Jim Bouton, Bill Lee's book, The Wrong Stuff, Bill Russell's book, both of his two books, Up for Glory and Second Wind, which he co-wrote with Taylor Branch, the great civil rights writer. Uh, these were all incredibly important to me. Um, and then there's uh, Jeanette Howard's book about Martina Navratilova and Chris Everett. Like that, that was another book. Like what I like are books that are political, but aren't boring. Political, but not overly sociological. Uh, political, but you never doubt for a second that the author has a true love of the sport itself. I, and I, I see that in your work. And what I like most about your work, in fact, is that, you know, it, do, it also doesn't just straightforwardly celebrate professional sports. You don't shy away from talking about the litany of problems that still exist, you know, starting with the terms of athletes' labor. Uh, but you also make it clear that the outright rejection of sports and the people who follow them is unfair and unproductive. I wonder if you might say that your view is similar to Bryant's. He makes a distinction in his book between the difficult and the complicated in demanding a more socially just sport culture. Uh, you know, specifically, he talks about how 
while it might be difficult for owners and people in positions of power to overcome their own racism and the racism embedded in nostalgia, these things are actually not complicated. Do you feel like part of your goal as a communicator is to try and clarify how a more inclusive, socially just culture of sports is within reach, that it might be difficult, but not like all that complicated to conceive of? Yeah, I mean, it's difficult because there's entrenched power that we need to fight against, but it's really not complicated. I mean, take this moment that we're in right now. I mean, you have all of these um, franchise owners and quote unquote sports thought leaders uh, who are putting out these statements about how they believe that Black Lives Matter and how overcoming racism is very important. But more often than not, uh, I mean, overwhelmingly more often than not, they're not mentioning police at all or police brutality. I mean, they're keeping it very airy. And that's because of the, I think, the contracts. I mean, first of all, it's their own politics, of course. And then they also have contracts with the police to provide security at games. Uh, They need to stand up to the police, though, and their refusal to do so speaks volumes about their politics and their interests. That's not complicated. Uh, Another thing that's not complicated is the fact that publicly funded stadiums have been the closest thing we have to an urban policy in this country and have had for a generation. So to have uh, ownership say that we want, you know, black lives to matter and we want... uh, address racism, yet they're not addressing the way that their own stadiums, their own wealth has been sucked out of the public till uh, for the purpose of building these monuments to corporate greed. I don't think that's very complicated either. And you talk in your uh, book, What's My Name Fool, about how, you know, uh, performance, athletic performance has sort of been outsourced, right? It's been this highly, it's become this highly privatized thing. And you you've seen the kind of um, you know, the effects of austerity and the kind of withering away of playground basketball and these kinds of things. But to me, you know, your work is most powerful when it doesn't disregard your your critics, as it were, who see sports as as this kind of brutal reflection of inequality. You incorporate that critique of sports. At, but your work is also about trying to salvage, as you say, the collaboration that uh, shadows competition. And right now seems to be a moment of widespread solidarity where even the mo- the famously apolitical Michael Jordan has developed an anti-racist political voice in saying that we need to change our laws. Um, but as Royce White said in relation to his work on mental health advocacy, there's a difference between progress and adequate progress. You've pointed out that this moment is showing that black athletes and dissidents can be effective at to quote you, puncturing the bubble that white people have the luxury of living in, you know, people like uh, Masai Ujiri are being listened to more seriously when they argue that we need to fundamentally stop the cycle. Do you think this is a kind of tipping point that can have a lasting impact? No, there's no question about it that it has the potential to be that tipping point. But, you know, we've also seen that, you know, people in power have all sorts of tools to be able to hold on to that power and reproduce injustice. I mean, I believe people are fed up. Um, I think the combination of uh, the killing of George Floyd, the killing of Breonna Taylor, uh, the killing of Ahmaud Arbery, and when you combine that with the mass unemployment that's taking place and the pandemic, uh, you've got a uniquely volatile situation in world history. Like some historians have said, it's like 1918 and 1968 had a baby with George Wallace being president 
uh, that that's a particularly fetid stew to be uh, to be consuming at the moment. Um, but it's going to take vigilance and it's going to take consistency. And in the history of U.S. social movements, that's that's always been the most difficult um, square to circle, so to speak. So, um, but I'm I'm heartened by the number of athletes who've come out and said something because one of the things that that does is it puts these ideas in front of white people who who could have the luxury to not care or just be entirely reactionary against uh, against the idea of protest. And so I think that there's been a lot of puncturing of privilege going on. Um, and I think that can only help things. And I, I think that just the number of white athletes who've spoken out, I mean, that's different than what we've seen before. I mentioned Michael Jordan. Uh, I wanted to actually talk about your series of articles on The Last Dance, if we could. You know, I I find in general that your articles for The Nation are perfectly structured for the kind of shareability, pithiness, and immediate impact that writing in a digital medium especially seems to require. Uh, In your articles on The Last Dance, though, you dig into Michael Jordan's rabid individualism his toxic intensity and say quite emphatically that we are allowed to reject his approach to basketball and critique the documentary celebration of it. I actually had the same response to the last dance. So those articles really spoke to me, but the popular response in places like ESPN's the jump has been to buy in and applaud that intensity as almost inspirational. Why do you think it's dangerous to kind of privilege MJ's approach to competition? Is there an antidote from your perspective to this sick ideology of domination that still seems to underpin so much of sports culture? Well, I think it's toxic because it's first and foremost, it's a lie. Uh, This idea that you have to be that way to win, I think, is disproven over and over again by some of the great winners in basketball history, from Bill Russell to Tim Duncan. That's not who they were yet they were still able to be just historic in their ability to win. It's not who LeBron James is if we're talking about individual excellence. So the trope itself is a lie. That's the first thing. Uh, The second thing uh, that we need to keep our eye on is that it's just a terrible example for young people getting into sports, that this is who you have to be. It's like Kobe's whole Mamba mentality thing, which was always more fluff than reality with Kobe. But with with Jordan, I will say it's not fluff. It's actually who he was. And in, in like watching the documentary with my own son, for example, who is a, you know, very, very good, I say with no small amount of pride, 12 year old basketball player, it I've had to sort of say, okay, that part is good. That part is not good. You know, like bullying people because they're, they're short or they're fat. Like that, that's, you know, that, that, that's gross, you know, and that's not something that should be part of your arsenal of how you speak to other people um, or finding the teammate who's the least effective and choosing that person to, to bully as a way to show your own intensity or, or punching a smaller teammate in the face. Like these things are not things that you should be doing or that you need to do in order to be like Mike. And so, so that, that, that's some of the toxicity of it. That, that, that I wanted to, to call out and discuss because uh, it's, it's not that I have some problem with who Jordan was. I mean, Jordan was who he was. It's the valorization of it that's the problem. If the documentary had attempted to critically examine who Jordan was, I think it would have uh, been much more useful, much more effective, and much more important. 
Yeah, it's really not part of the conversation. You know that there are like very brief flashes of him sort of acknowledging uh, the damage that he caused, and and you know it's it's but it's fleeting, right? And they even had one moment that was particularly disingenuous. I, I believe it was the end of episode four, I believe, that shows Jordan talking about his intensity and then welling up with tears, and then they they quickly cut and they stop. And then that's like the last image as if to say that he had to sacrifice a part of himself to be this way, to be that awful. And that, I got to tell you that, that that's an abuser's mentality. You know, this idea of saying, why did you make me be this way? And oftentimes abusers are people who feel sorry for themselves and who want to be pitied. Like, why do you make me do this? And so, you know, even that, like that trope being being put out there uncritically, uh, was really disturbing. Turn turn the old stomach. Same, and and I like that you just straight up expose it as a lie. You know, when when LeBron James won his first championship, he gives this emotional speech in which he talks about changing his approach to the game and and playing with a lot of love. And it speaks to you know something that. Uh, you, you write about in all of your work. I mean, it seems to me that there's a passion for the specific artistry of sports in almost every sentence of your work, which I really appreciate. And in your conversation for Haymarket Books, you and Scoop Jackson reject all analytics as wrong because it seems to me you see it as undermining that artistry in a sense. Um, I wondered if you could speak to this idea that analytics are bad because they're sort of maybe bent on mechanizing athletic performance. Um, you know, why should we oppose analytics? Is, is it, is it a way of undermining that artistry? Well, I'm not, I'm not hardcore opposed to analytics. I mean, I really do think in some cases they can illuminate sports and make them uh, more interesting. Like there's certain analytics, uh, particularly in basketball that, that I feel like can be illuminating. Uh, the, the problem is that when, when analytics, you know, like it, it's not like computers or coaches and general managers. We have human beings who are interpreting the data. And the problem is that, you know, when groupthink takes over from analytics, uh, you get a not only a very staid and boring uh, mode of basketball, to use that as the example at work here, or, uh, or baseball, which I think even more so analytics have taken over. Uh, the problem is also that you do take a lot of the joy out of the game. You take away a lot of the improvisational ability of the player, like never swing on a 2-1 pitch. Well, why not? Never try to steal a base because you could be giving them an out. Well, what if you're Ricky Henderson? I mean, so what you're doing is you're denying a lot of people's individual brilliance. And of course, you're denying the fan the ability to see athletes use their minds and not just their bodies. And so I think what it does is it takes away the agency from the athlete far too often. And what it also does is you still have, you know, the best funded teams win in baseball. You still have the teams with the best players win in basketball. So what I'd love to see is more teams trying to actually exploit the groupthink and try to operate in a different way as a way to um, as a way to actually take advantage of some of the um, inefficiencies that exist because other people aren't uh, focused upon them. I think that's really interesting, you know, like really trying to uh, underscore the athlete's agency and the kind of improvisational nature of um, certain sports, you know, uh, um, there are books that suggest basketball is sort of the most predictable sport 
you know, in terms of metrics. Uh, but then you have people, you know, like Steph Curry, who break the game by developing strange habits of shooting from, you know, 35 feet away and so on. Um, you know, the, that that was seen as absolutely absurd before he perfected it. Um, and now... And then it becomes the shot of other people practice. Exactly. And, and then it produces a different kind of game. Uh, the same way, like, like Magic Johnson had one year where he shot one for 21 from three-point land. Does anybody actually think that if Magic Johnson played today, he would be a, what, 5% three-point shooter? Of course he wouldn't be. Uh, because he would work his butt off on that shot. And I mean, and there's something beautiful about basketball discovering the three-point shot, but then when it becomes something of a trend, something of a trend and it becomes groupthink, then you get you you just replicate the same inequalities just uh, with a different sheen on it and with a much more boring game. And and to kind of maybe pivot back to the the politics of sport in particular, um, you know, it, but still stay on the subject of the NBA. You've noted in your books that the NBA has primarily players that come from poor inner city backgrounds. This seems to me to be the most convincing retort to the Laura Ingram shut up and dribble argument. You know, we're we're seeing former players like Royce White, who grew up in Minneapolis, and Stephen Jackson, who was a personal friend of George Floyd, leading protests. Um, do you think that the reason, though, that we're seeing more current, that we aren't seeing rather more current players protesting might have something to do with the way that politics is still kind of policed out of sports? You know, are they hesitant to risk their careers for principle, as you've put it? Um, can it all be traced back to the blackballing of Colin Kaepernick? Um, you know, what what does it mean to risk uh, a career out of principle in this in this context? Well, I mean, it's interesting because, you know, when Colin Kaepernick did what he did, I mean, you'd had um, some uh, some Twitter talk about Black Lives Matter. You'd had the players in the WNBA uh, make a stand, but you weren't really seeing anything translate uh, into men's sports, into the NFL in particular. And quarterbacks are the face of their franchise. I mean, quarterbacks are some of the few players that we know underneath the helmet. You know, other players are treated as interchangeable. And so to have Colin Kaepernick do that at that time and take that risk really was extraordinary. It was extraordinary in the same way that Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf taking that risk and not coming out for the anthem 20 years earlier was extraordinary. Or Craig Hodges uh, ignored from the last dance, uh, taking his stance 25 years earlier as a member of the championship bulls. All of these things, uh, represent players pushing against the grain right now. We're in a moment where you're going with the grain to say something like to do something. But then I think what's been so interesting about this moment is that it's one thing to say something. It's another thing to back those words up with deeds. And so to see Stephen Jackson there in the street, to see Royce White organizing demonstrations, uh, to see Carl Anthony Towns just a couple of months removed from his mother dying of COVID out there in the Twin Cities, I mean, that's new and that's different. It's especially new and different when we consider that back in 1967 and 1968, during that era of urban uprisings, it wasn't uncommon to see athletes sent out I mean, Willie Horton of the Detroit Tigers was even sent out in his uniform 
uh, as a way to actually quell and calm down protest. Now, to see people actually, pro athletes actually taking part in it, I mean, just says to me that we're in a new era of athlete activism. Yeah, I get that sense too. Um, uh, there's there's this kind of wave happening. And so, you know, th- this, I think, um, leads into my next question. You know, uh, would you say that your job as the first ever sports editor at a very progressive magazine, The Nation, is reflective of this increasingly visible overlap of sports and politics? And how do you try and balance championing politically conscious athletes while still arguing that looking to them to, quote, lead a resistance in a vacuum is a recipe for regret? Well, I think it's, uh, I mean, obviously that, that was an easier thing to argue when I started doing this 15 years ago. I think now people are looking to athletes to a much greater degree because there's such a deficit of leadership in our society. Um, and so it's like, I do want to hold up and celebrate these athletes who are speaking out. But like, it's like we were talking about before about difficult and not complicated, not complicated. I don't think this is a complicated dynamic. It's like we should hold up the athletes who are speaking out because they're using their platform and their influence. But we also have to understand that they're not going to create movements in a vacuum. And there are more reflections of what's going happening, uh, what's happening on the street than they are the people who, who are actually making it happen on the street. Although in the cases of Steven Jackson and Royce White, you're actually seeing exceptions to that. Um, <clears throat> Megan Rapino as well has to be said, exceptions to that. But more often than not, it is a reflection. And if you start just looking for the reflection to make change, you end up being immobile and not doing anything. And I think that was actually a problem in the last several years where a lot of folks were saying, where's Colin Kaepernick? Why doesn't he say something? Why doesn't he do more? Instead of asking themselves the question about why they don't do more and that it's not for him to do for them. They can't substitute for a movement. People have to make their own movements. So. That that's been a difficult uh, that's been a difficult thing to argue, but it's not complicated. It's I think really straightforward, and so that's what I try to do with the nation. I'm I'm, I'm I've been nation's been a great home for me. It's not the most uh, uh, well paying job in the world of journalism, but what it does allow me very much is incredible support from the editorial staff there. Um, and uh, incredible space to be able to write what I want to write and explore these issues. So I'm, I'm very grateful to them. I think it sets a, a kind of example, a model for how to think about sports, which I think is important. You know, you've got people like ESPN chief Jimmy Pitaro saying, you know, our fans do not want us to cover politics. And you've said that that's part of a long-term effort to silence voices um, that try and view sports through a political lens. And I think maybe... The most emblematic story for this kind of, you know, attempt to extract politics from sports is the rift between uh, Geo Media and Deadspin. And and I wanted to quote the Gizmodo Media Group's Digital Writers Union um, in in response to this kind of crackdown on, um, you know, Deadspin Deadspin's coverage of issues related to sports. They they said that these restrictions on what they could report on, which ultimately led to protests and a walkout really uh, was about, you know, uh, ref- denying these writers the ability to speak truth to power. That mantra of, you know, or d- directive, stick to sports, is really code for saying, don't be political, don't speak truth to power. At this point, though, would you find, do you find it encouraging that, you know, after refusing that mandate from GO Media, you've got writers like Chuck Modiano, 
who are back to using Deadspin as a site for saying that athletes can and should hold power accountable? Yeah, not just Chuck. I mean, 50% of the staff at the current Deadspin are black um, people or people of color. Uh, they just recently, it was very male heavy, if not, I think 100% male when it first got off the ground. They've since hired Julie DeCaro, uh, who's one of the great feminist voices in sports to do podcasts and write articles. So I'm very encouraged by the direction that it's that it's going in. Um, I, I, I even wonder, though, I got to tell you about the wisdom of them keeping the Deadspin name. Um, I wonder if they should start fresh. Uh, with a new brand uh, because of the way the old staff left uh, and because of the conflicts with Geo Media. Like, if it would have been better to just start something from scratch. Um, but, I, you know, that that gets into a different realm of uh, marketing and branding that I, I'm not privy to and I'm not particularly interested in as well. But you mentioned Chuck Modiano. He's actually a dear friend of mine. Um, and uh, I'm very glad that he has an outlet where he can be heard. And of course, I, you know, I disagree with the formulation that the new writers there were crossing a picket line to work there uh, or that they're scabs or something like that, because, you know, the people who were at Deadspin made the decision to walk out. And I support that decision um, a thousand percent. But, you know, once they left and once they reopened, you know, then, you know, people got to work and find a place to be seen and be heard. Modiano writes really powerfully that, quote, athletes are not waiting on white people, media or good cops to hold uh, the Minneapolis Police Department cops accountable. And, and it, it's this kind of thing that, that you're starting to see amplified, I think. And, you know, in, in your work, there is this clear dedication to amplifying particular voices. You have an interview with Lee Evans, for example, um, where you, you know, you ask him questions about the struggle for black freedom, basically, which he says has to be brought back into sports. You have a, an interview with John Carlos, where he says that, you know, so much of what was occurring in 1968 is still the case. And he says things are just more cosmetically disguised. He identifies the persistence of lynching. Why was it important to you to include and amplify these voices? And, and do you also think that podcasts, the medium of podcasting, has a particular place in, in amplifying and including diverse voices. Like what is it about um, that medium in particular that you might sort of see as empowering? No doubt podcasting is empowering. No doubt if we, and that's not just podcasting. I see podcasting as a piece with social media, with people's media, with people getting the story from the ground up. I mean, I just think that like 1968, John Carlos, Tommy Smith, Lee Evans, when, when Wyoming Atias, it would have been so different if they'd been able to have spaces where they could explain who they were and why they did what they did. And that's what podcasting really supplies. Um, and because of that, they actually did very few interviews because the mainstream media was, was just uh, vilifying them. And so for them to be able to have had a space, I think that would have not only been important for them, uh, and it would have like actually pushed back against the isolation that they then experienced. But it also would have been really important historically for us today, looking back. So I think the fact that we have these outlets, while they can be frustrating, while, for example, you know, it all, sometimes it feels like you have to wade through too much, like particularly in the podcasting world, uh, to be able to find what's good and, and effective and helpful. Um, I'd rather have that situation than be living in a kind of media desert where only a couple of corporations get to make all the decisions about what we know and don't know and what we hear and don't hear 
and what we think about some of these rebel figures. And I, I don't want to take too much more of your time. Uh, I appreciate you connecting with me. Um, I just wanted to kind of, you know, uh, emphasize what I think is a really important point that you make in your book, Welcome to the Terror Dome, that, as you say, the struggle and its relationship to sports is a question not of the past, but of the future. You know, you say sports has been uh, suffocated by corporate greed, commercialism, and military cheerleading. Can you speak to that idea of just being future-oriented about what sports can do, how it can maybe bring us together, um, and how you remain kind of invested in that in your writing and even in your appreciation of sports? Yeah, I mean, I wrote that uh, like 13 years ago, and I feel like the future is now. Um, gratifying, I got lived to, I, I was able to live to see it. I mean, both athletes breaking out from the corporate shackles to speak out after the murder of George Floyd um, and Breonna Taylor and Ahmed Arbery, but also um, a lot more than 13 years ago, I see uh, women uh, thinking about their place in sports, trans people thinking about their place in sports, um, and people of color uh, critically examining, black people critically examining the role that sports plays in their community. And, you know, that that is so that we need more of that. We need more critical examinations of what's bad about sports so we could challenge it to change. Um, it's like the theme of this podcast, you know, what's difficult but not complicated. The problems really aren't complicated in sports. What's difficult is changing them, but I really do feel that the change is underway. Thanks so much for making the time. Oh, no, thank you. I appreciate it.